So as Jim mentioned, today we are entering into a new book, the book of Hebrews. This is one of those books that I remember when I first became a believer that I was intimidated upon. There was a few books like that. It was John. It said some strange things, John 6, John 3, John 17, some strange passages in, in John. I remember reading Romans and being very confused, Romans 9 and some other passages, Romans 3, so forth. Um, 2 Corinthians, strange book in some places, some interesting passages there. Of course, the Apocalypse, the book of Revelation, everybody loves, but nobody understands. At least many people don't understand. And then the book of Hebrews was another one of the books on that list. It was one of those books that I remember basically mentally putting a sticky note on and saying, I will be back. I will one day understand this book. Now, when you think about the book of Hebrews, what comes to your mind? Jim already prayed a few things. Kind of a good summary of the book of Hebrews, the superiority of Christ. If you read the book of Hebrews and you miss that, what were you reading? You were reading a different book. The book of Hebrews is about the superiority of Christ, the superiority of Christ over angels, we'll look at. The superiority of Christ over Old Testament revelation, we're going to look at that. The superiority of Christ over Moses, over Joshua, over all of it. That Christ is supreme. That's what the book of Hebrews is all about. Now, there's a few various questions about the book of Hebrews. We won't spend too much time on this. Uh, Who wrote the book of Hebrews? Who knows? That's the answer. Who knows? Many in the early church believed it was Paul. They were probably right, but we can't prove that. Some people who read Greek a lot better than me say that it wasn't Paul. But people who read Greek a lot better than them said it was. So what do you make of it? Who knows? Um, The fact of the matter is, the beginning of the letter, which we'll jump into a second, doesn't tell us who wrote it. You know what that means? It doesn't matter. Anybody get that? God wrote this letter. This is in our Bibles. It is God's inspired word to us. And it is written to a group of Jews or people struggling with apostasy or struggling with going back into Judaism. And it has words for us. So who wrote the book of Hebrews? We don't know. People have thrown out names. Paul is the most famous. Some say Barnabas. Some say Apollos. Some say a whole bunch of other people. But we simply do not know. What's the first question that comes up with the book of Hebrews? The second thing that the book of Hebrews often is famous for, infamous for, is those warning passages. Is anybody familiar with those warning passages? Those terrifying passages of Hebrews chapter 6, Hebrews chapter 10. There's a whole bunch of them. Hebrews chapter 12. There are a bunch of these warning passages that we're going to discuss, and we don't want to ignore any of it. Is that right? Sometimes we accuse people who are on the non-reform camp of ignoring Romans 9. But you don't want to ignore Hebrews 6 either. We need to hear all of God's word, and including in this wonderful book. So that's the way of intro. Let's go ahead and jump into the text. Hebrews chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He opposed the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son? Today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, 
let all the angels worship him. He makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. And the, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who inherit salvation? Now skip down to verse 5, chapter 2. Now it, is not, now it is not to the angels that God has subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At the present time, we do not see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So as we think about the book of Hebrews, the superior of Christ, those terrifying warning passages, how many of you, when you think about the book of Hebrews, think about the deity of Christ? If you don't, you should. Oftentimes, if I asked you to defend the deity of Christ, if you were talking to a Muslim, talking to a Mormon, talking to Jehovah Witness, talking to any of those people, and I said, defend the deity of Christ, where would you go? What would be your text? Anybody? John 1? Hopefully you're going to John 1, right? In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. You're going to go to John 1 pretty quickly. There might be some other passages. We're going to hit on some of those other passages that you would go to. But you should come here as well, because that's what this is all about, is about the deity of Christ, and we see his deity. We actually see Christ compared to the angels. If you don't know, that's what the Arians believe about Jesus, right? They believe that Jesus is an angel. Well, Hebrews 1 is written to refute that kind of thinking. It's a wonderful passage to do that. In fact, I knew uh, my old pastor, I think he was next to a Jehovah Witness. Maybe it was Mormon. I can't remember. One of those two groups. They denied the deity of Christ. And he was on an airplane. And he was discussing with this individual about why Christ was God. And he had an answer. They always have an answer. I shouldn't say always. They sometimes have an answer. Whether it's good or false. If they're studied, they have some kind of answer. So he was ready for John 1. He was ready for Romans 9.5. He was ready for Colossians chapter 1. He was ready for Revelation 22 and Revelation chapter 1. He was ready for those. And so my pastor was getting flustered. He shouldn't get flustered. God's word is true, whether people reject it or not. But he was getting flustered and thought, what else do I have? He went to Hebrews chapter 1. He wasn't ready for that one. Because people often ignore this passage. This is a wonderful passage about the deity of Christ. But before we jump in there, I'm getting ahead of myself. Before we jump into the deity of Christ, there's another thing that I often come to this passage. Because to be honest, I'm not often debating the deity of Christ. Hopefully we've embraced that doctrine long ago. We live it and breathe it. You know how the early church came to the doctrine of the Trinity? One of the ways that they came to the doctrine of the Trinity is they lived the Trinity. They found themselves worshiping God the Father. They found themselves worshiping God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. And hopefully that is how you are. You don't even realize that you're doing it all the time. Singing songs to the Father, singing songs to Christ, singing songs to the Holy Spirit. And of course there was a man named Arius who started teaching false things. And they started saying, we've never taught that. 
You're saying that Christ is a creature, but we've never held to that. And they started thinking, well, if that's true, then why are we worshiping Christ? See, we are functional Trinitarians all of the time. So generally speaking, I'm not defending the deity of Christ, but generally the reason I come to this chapter primarily is right there in verse 1. Let's look at it again. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, to whom also he created the world. It's that first statement right there. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to the fathers, but in these last days... He has spoken to us in his Son. Here in the New King James, it says, it labels this little section, God's supreme revelation. And I think that's right. That's what this section is talking about. God's supreme revelation. Where is God's supreme revelation found? Is it found in the latest pop culture reference, the latest self-help book, the latest YouTube channel? Where is it found? Is it even found in the Old Testament? I know that might be surprising for me to say that. But where is God's supreme revelation found? Look at verse 1 again. He spoke in many times and in many ways to our fathers in the past, but in these last days he has spoken to us in his Son. Christ is the supreme revelation of God. That's right. He is. If you think about creation, Pastor Neil has been preaching about Genesis. We see God created the word how many days? How many days did he create the world? Six. Six, right? What was the last thing he created? Man. And theologians have often and long said this man is the crowning jewel of creation. And that's why he is last. Well, same thing here. God saved the best for last. Christ is the supreme revelation of Jesus Christ. I'm going to say something that most of you already know, most of you already feel, but maybe you're too ashamed to say it. But I spend, at least for my own self, about 95% of the time reading the New Testament. Not that I don't read the Old Testament. I enjoy the Old Testament. But I spend most of the time reading the New Testament. Am I, am I alone out there? Any of you, besides Pastor Neil maybe, spend most of the time in the Old Testament? Okay, Proverbs and Psalms don't count. But other than those two books, come on. We spend most of the time in the New Testament. Why? It's not that the Old Testament isn't wonderful. It is. But the reason that we spend most of the time in the New Testament is because it is the supreme revelation of Jesus Christ. That we see the doctrines that we treasure most clearly in the New Testament. That does not mean it's not in the Old Testament. They are there. But sometimes they're blurry. You have to work to draw them out. It has been famously said that the Old Testament is the New The Old Testament is the new concealed. The New Testament is the old revealed. Isn't that true? You see the same doctrine. You see the doctrine of the Trinity even in chapter 1 of Genesis. Let us make man in our image. But how much more clearly do you see the doctrine of the Trinity when you have the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit being displayed all throughout the New Testament? You see the doctrine of the gospel in the Old Testament, but you see it so much more clearly in the New Testament. I'll give you an analogy. Some of you, many of you have kids already. And many of you who don't have kids, you've at least seen those little black and white pictures, ultrasound pictures, and people are like, here's my baby, and you kind of look. And you're like, where is it? And you're like, look, you can see kind of, right, you see the face, and you're like, oh, I see it a little bit. And like, I think I see a nose. Anybody had that experience? 
you have it, come over to my house. I have ultrasound pictures of all of my children there, and I, we can have this little experience. I can show you there he is, and you'll be confused, and, and I'll point it out to you. Those pictures are wonderful. Those pictures save lives. People often think that their children are not children and blobs, and then they see those pictures, and they look hard enough, and they realize, oh, I see a face and a hand and fingers. Those, those pictures are wonderful. I'm not trying to disparage that, right? But who would prefer the ultrasound picture to the baby in the other room? Anybody? You prefer the ultrasound picture or the baby in the other room? Obviously, you prefer the baby in the other room. Also, who would prefer an ultrasound picture to an HD video capturing the baby walking around and talking and moving? Nobody, right? And that really is a picture in some ways of the Old Testament versus New Testament. The Old Testament is that blurry picture many times. And the New Testament is the clear and revealed word of God. Okay, some of you might be a little bit uncomfortable with what I'm saying here. So I want to show you something. Go to, go to John. John chapter 1. The Gospel of John chapter 1 verse 16. Here's what we hear the Bible speak about itself. John chapter 1 verse 16. And of his fullness, so my Christ, we have all received grace upon grace. Some of your translations say grace for grace. Either way, it doesn't matter. We have received from Christ grace upon grace for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. You see the, the juxtaposition there? That the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now, of course, that does not mean that there was no grace in the Old Testament, and it doesn't mean that there's no law in the New Testament. We have the royal law. Jesus has the law of Christ. There are laws in the New Testament, but primarily the New Testament isn't known based on its laws, but on its grace. Everybody see that? And so same thing here that it's saying in comparison to the Old Testament, Moses, it is like Moses gave us the law, but like Christ gave us grace and of truth. Now really, the whole book of Hebrews is about this idea of the superiority of the revelation of Jesus Christ. So I will... I will leave that for now. We'll come back to that. But what I'm really trying to simply say is that the Old Testament is types and shadows. And the New Testament fills in those shadows. Another person once said that the Old Testament is like walking in a room with lights turned off. You're kind of feeling around, feeling, oh, that's what this means and that's what this. The New Testament turns on all of those lights. The point of all this is not to disparage anyone whose favorite book is the book of Exodus. That's fine. God bless you. But the point of this is simply to say, never forget that God's final and supreme revelation of himself is found in the New Testament. This is where we bring the clarity of this reality. We should, also, we should never also forget the words of 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20. For Christ indeed was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and your hope are in God. It is through Christ that you come to God. Sometimes people have this movement of going back to the Hebrew roots, which in some ways there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. But let's remember that it was Christ who brought you to the Father. Christ is the one who brings us to God. One other consideration. Turn over to Numbers chapter 12. I want to show you that even in the Old Testament, there was this idea of different layers and levels of revelation. Numbers chapter 12, verse 1 through 8. Here's a scene that's often forgotten. Numbers chapter 12, verse 1 through 8. Then Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses. 
This is, of course, Moses, the famous Moses, and he has two siblings, Miriam, who's a prophetess, and Aaron, his brother. So they speak against Moses because of the Ethiopian woman whom he had married, for he had married an Ethiopian woman. So they said, has the Lord indeed only spoken through Moses? Has he not also spoken through us? And the answer, of course, is yes, he has. And the Lord heard it. Now the man Moses was very humble, more than all the men who were on the face of the earth. Suddenly the Lord said to Moses, Aaron and Miriam, come out, you three, to the tabernacle of meeting. So the three came out. Then the Lord came down in the pillar of the cloud and stood in the door of the tabernacle and called Aaron and Miriam. And they went forward. Then he said, this is what the Lord says, hear now my words. Is there a prophet among you? I, the Lord, make myself known to him in vision. I speak to him in a dream, but not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all of my house. I speak to him face to face, even plainly, and not in dark sayings. And he sees the form of the Lord. Why then would you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? Hopefully everybody sees the scene. You have three prophets going down. Three prophets at each other's necks in some ways. You have Moses, the prophet, and you have Arian, and Miriam, the prophet, and the prophetess. And they speak against Moses. So then the Lord, because Moses is humble and doesn't want to rebuke his siblings, the Lord rebukes them for them. And he brings them together and says, why were you not afraid? Because I speak to the other prophets, what, in a vision? I speak to him in a dream. I speak to him in dark sayings. But to Moses, who you spoke against, I speak to him face to face. So were you not afraid? What's going on here is this. In the Old Testament, Moses was the chief prophet. That's what's going on. Moses was one who God had revealed himself more clearly than he had the other prophets. And so Moses, the other prophets, give way to the interpretation of Moses. Hope you see that. Moses is the paradigm of which you understand the prophets. The prophets are interpreting Moses. The prophets are expanding upon Moses. But Moses is the paradigm. Hope you see that. Now, what's so fascinating about this, this idea that Moses' revelation is more clear and more supreme than the other prophets' revelation, is that the same idea is true in the New Testament. So flip back over to the book of Hebrews. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 3 and look at verse 1. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him, who appointed him, as Moses was also faithful in all of his house. For this one has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, and as much as he built the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone else, but he who built all things is God. And Moses indeed was faithful in all of his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which would be spoken afterward, but Christ as a son over his own house. So what this is doing is it's comparing Moses with Jesus and saying that Jesus is much more superior to Moses, just as that you have the superiority of the builder over the house. Now, interesting enough, this statement, Moses was also faithful in all of his house, is a citation of the passage in Numbers that we were just reading. So just as Moses was superior to the Old Testament prophets, Christ is superior to Moses. And what this means is, that we interpret the Old Testament through Moses, and we interpret Moses through Christ. Christ is the supreme revelation of God. That is what's going on here. God at various times and in various ways has spoken in the past 
to the fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son. The New Testament revelation through Christ is God's supreme revelation. Now, point number two. Since Christ is the final revelation, not only is it the supreme revelation, not only is it what you understand everything else based upon, but it's also God's final revelation. Everybody see that? In times of past, he spoke through the prophets at various times in various ways. But now to us, he has spoken by his son. This means that Christ is the final revelation of God. You know what this means? We are not looking for a man named Muhammad. Right? Did you know that there was a man named Muhammad? And he came and said, I am the final revelation. And the Christian said, no, you're not. We have the final revelation 500 years prior. His name is Jesus Christ. We're also not looking for a man named Joseph Smith. Does everybody see that? And any other cult leader that shows up. We are not looking for you. We rather have it. Christ is God's final revelation. We're not looking for another prophet. We're not looking for another teacher. The only person we're looking for is Christ to return. And Christ even says, when I come, many people will say, here I am, and I'm there, and I'm in the mountains, I'm in the hills, I'm everywhere else. He says, no, it'll be like vultures when there's a corpse. In other words, it'd be plain and obvious. You will know. We're not looking for Muhammad. We're not looking for Joseph Smith. We're not looking for anybody else. We have God's final revelation in Jesus Christ. Only Christ is what we are looking for. All right, let's look past that at the second part of verse 2. God, who has spoken at various times and in various ways, but now in these last days, has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the world. Now, we're going to look in that phrase more next time about this idea that Christ has been appointed heir of all things, but hopefully that is somewhat familiar to you all, that Christ is Lord of lords and King of kings, that nobody is above Christ that everything has been subjected to him, that he sits at the right hand of the Father, that he is the heir of all creation. You saw that in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5, that the world to come has been subjected to Christ. Christ is heir, and we, in Christ, become joint heirs with him. But then we have this interesting phrase. It says, through whom also he made the worlds. Through whom he also made the worlds. Now turn over to Hebrews chapter 11, and we'll see another similar phrase, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3. It says this, By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of the things which are visible. Share a similar phrase. These are passages. One of the unique things about both of these passages is both they're describing that the world was created by Jesus. You may not see that in verse chapter Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3, but when it says that it were framed, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. That's a double entendre. Double entendre means double meaning. That by the word of God means Jesus, God spoke the world into existence, but it also referring to Christ himself. And you can see this, we don't have time, but if you go to Hebrews chapter 4, you have that passage, that famous passage about the word of God is living and sharper than two-edged sword. And then Pastor Neil actually quoted that passage where it talks about, and we cannot hide from him whom we must give an account. Because the word of God is both the Bible and the person of Jesus. But the other thing that's interesting about both of these passages, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2, and Hebrews 11, verse 3, is that the word 
here, worlds, is actually ionios. And the word ionios means ages. And so this is not the normal word for world, which is cosmos. Cosmos is the normal term for world, and yet we have this word here, ionios, which means ages. Now, what's even more interesting is it's not in the singular, but in the plural. So if you have an ESV, it just simply says that through Christ he made the world. But if you have the New King James or the KJV, it says worlds. So why worlds? Well, again, because it's actually plural in the Greek. So there's two possibilities here. One, that there's nothing to be made of this, that the term worlds is just a plurality of majesty. The greatness of all creation is worlds, and that's why your ESV translates it world. But it's also possible that there is something significant about this plurality of worlds, namely that there is more than one, that there are multiple worlds. Now, what does this idea mean? Well, the first thing we need to understand is the concept of what is a world. A world is obviously a place that we live. It is a measurement of space. Ionios is a measurement of time. The reason they translate it world here is because we, generally speaking, talk about being in a world. We measure reality by spatial terms more than by temporal terms, but they mean the same thing. So we talk about the world as the place where we reside and where we move and live and have our being. That's what the idea of world is. Now, often I think, when I say there's many worlds, some of you might be raising eyebrow, what do I mean? There's only one world. Well, that's the way we think of it, but really there are multiple worlds, if you think about it. The fact of the matter is there is a physical world, is the one that we think about, but we often forget the spiritual world. There's a spiritual dimension out there, a spiritual reality. And this is why the Bible talks about Satan being in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, the God of this age or the God of this world. There's a whole spiritual reality out there where the devil and angels reside. And the Hebrews actually would refer to God as the Lord of the worlds. And they often talked about three worlds. Sometimes you see in the Bible three heavens. It's the same idea. The world where angels reside. And then you also had the underworld. And then you had the world that we reside. So it's very possible that what this passage is saying, it's describing that Christ is the creator of the worlds. That is the physical world and the spiritual world. Now, fortunately, whether this passage says it or not, the Bible says this over and over, that Jesus is the creator of all things. So you can think about John chapter 1 once more. That talks about God created through Jesus. John chapter 1, verse 3, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. Without Him, nothing was made that was made. Often we skip that last part. Through all things were made through him, and without him, nothing was made that was made. So all of creation, whether visible or invisible, was created by Christ. Christ is the creator of both the physical and the invisible world. We see the same idea in Colossians chapter 1. Colossians 1.15 describes Christ as the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over every creature. For by him all things were created. Things in heaven and things on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things consist. Christ is the creator of all of reality, not just the physical, but also the spiritual. Christ is no angel. He creates the angel. 
In Revelation 3.14, it describes Christ as the origin of creation. God, through the person of Christ, who always existed, is the one who brought the world or the worlds into being. And this is a specifically poignant point in the book of Hebrews in the context because it appears that some people, just like they do today, were wondering if Jesus was really superior to the angels, if rather Jesus was just merely an angel. And what Hebrews is trying to tell you is, no, Jesus is not merely an angel, but rather Jesus is the creator and the sustainer of all of it, not just the physical world, but of all of reality. And you can see this, again, look at verse 5 of Hebrews chapter 1. You can see this contrast between Jesus and the angels. Verse 5, for which of the angels did he ever say? Verse 13, to which of the angels has he ever said? Chapter 2, verse 5, for he has not put the world to come, of which we speak in subjection to angels, but, dot, 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 but to Christ. So the contrast is of Christ versus the angels. The angels are merely ministering spirits, but rather Jesus is the creator of all of reality. And this idea that Jesus is no mere man, he is certainly no mere angel, but rather Jesus is creator, is all throughout the scriptures. Let me give you a few examples. In Revelation chapter 22, verse 13, it says of Christ, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Now, in the book of Revelation, in the KJV, this same phrase is applied to Jesus in chapter 1, the beginning of the book. But in modern critical editions, it's not in there. And the Jehovah Witnesses know that. So I brought them to this passage, which is in both. It said, who is this talking about? And it's in red letters. It's very clear that it's talking about Jesus. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. How could a mere creature say such things as that? Only God is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the first and the last. First Timothy 3.16, for God was manifested in the flesh justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up in glory. First John 5, 7, there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. Romans chapter 9, verse 5, for, for from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, the eternally blessed God. Amen. That is who Christ is. He is God. He's revealed all throughout the scriptures as God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so in light of this, we can say with Thomas, when he looked at Jesus, my Lord and my God. That is who we serve. That is who Christ is. He is God in the flesh. He is the one who is supreme over all. He is the creator of all things. When you think about God, you should primarily think about God as the creator, the sustainer, and the maker. And that is who Jesus is. And you see other passages here right in the very context showing you that Jesus is God. You see in verse 5, it compares Jesus with the angel saying, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And describing that he has never said these things to an angel. Now certainly angels are the sons of God in the sense that they are direct creations of God. But they are not sons of God in the sense that they are heirs. Only Jesus is and us in Christ. And we find this amazing verse in verse 6. Let all the angels worship him. Now, who is verse 6 referring to? Let all the angels worship him. It's referring to Christ. Now, should angels or any being, for that matter, worship a created being? Of course not. What do we call 
when a created being is worshipped. What does that refer to? Idolatry. But yet, we have here God telling angels to worship Christ. Of course, it's because he is Christ. Verse 8, But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Twice in this verse, Jesus is directly called God. Therefore, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. That's referring to Christ. Therefore, God, your God, the Father of Jesus, your God, has anointed you with oil and gladness behind your companions. And then finally, look at verse 10. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will wear out like a garment. This passage here, the word Yahweh is being used. You, Yahweh laid the foundation of the earth. Here is describing God as the creator. But this is in the section being applied to Jesus and saying Jesus is that Yahweh who laid the foundation of the earth. The heavens are the work of his hand. They will perish, but Christ will remain. They will wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same and your ears have no end. This is who we serve. We serve Christ who is God. He is no mere angel, but rather he is God. And this very God, as we saw in that passage of Timothy, this is the mystery of godliness, that God was manifested in the flesh. He was justified in the spirit. He was seen by angels. He's been preached among the Gentiles. He's been believed on in the world and received up in glory. This is the Christ that we serve, who is our creator and our redeemer. And so as we think about the book of Hebrews, we should go and reflect upon what this chapter is really all about, which is about Christ is the supreme revelation of God. And that supreme revelation is his son, who himself is God. That is who we worship. Please join me in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father God, we thank you that we do not worship a mere creature, that we are not been given to idolatry, but rather that we know from the testimony of your word from cover to cover that Jesus is the son of God, that Jesus himself is God, that you are one and three and three and one, and we worship you as triune. Help us to never become rationalists who reject your word because of pressures and because of intellectual difficulties, but we will be, we will be people who say like Samuel, speak, Lord, for your servant hears. Lord, we thank you that you have given us your final revelation, that we don't have to wait for some prophet. We don't have to wait for continuous revelation, but your completed word has been, been completed in Christ. Help us to hear and to believe and to receive. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.